Hello, and welcome back to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. Today, we will be doing the introductory episode for Season 2. We'll peel back the curtain and look into the wide, wacky world of the Sherman tank. Or, more like the history of the U.S. tank, comma, medium, comma, M4. Before we kick off into our new spat of research and episodes, which, just to give everyone a heads up, who maybe you're just joining us for the first time, this is going to be a rather thorough and exhaustive series. Much like the Panther tank, we will be covering a lot of material. My goal will be quite similar with what I think we accomplished with the Panther series. To be quite thorough in my analysis of the vehicle from beginning to end, top to bottom, inside and out. Which means there is a lot of material we are going to have to cover. The Sherman's life didn't end after the Second World War. In fact, and in many ways, uh, it was just beginning. The last Sherman tank, which was in formal service, was somewhat recently retired from active duty. I'm talking in 2018, Paraguay finally retired the three remaining Shermans of the Regimento Escolta Presidencial. You'll have to pardon my horrible pronunciation. The number of variants produced would require at least two hands to count. Damn near 50,000 Shermans in some form or another were actually built. When I tell you this is going to be a long series, I am not putting you on. We'll be living and breathing the Sherman for quite some time. So let's batten down the hatches, grab your kit, and get ready for a lovely series on my second most favorite tank, the M4 Sherman. Before we dive into the M4 Sherman itself, we have to turn the clock back a little and see just how the Americans would land on the final design of the M4. It was not born out of a vacuum or some immaculate design conception. No, it was more like a step-by-step tech tree you might imagine from some war game out there. Uh, I refuse to name names. By that I mean, at the end of the First World War, the United States Army was outfitted with the French-designed Raynal light tank. Often referred to as the Raynal FT, this is of course more of a modern nomenclature and is totally acceptable when discussing this early tank. And just for what it's worth, I've heard it called many other names, such as the FT-17, the Raynal FT-17, the FT-17-18, the Char FT, the Raynal Char FT-17-18. Okay, I made that last one up. The point is, <clears throat> during the Great War, the French would have likely just called it Les Chars Raynal or Chars Legues. Uh, again, forgive my French, but what, what actually matters for our purposes is that this Raynal light tank would be the basis for the immediate post-war and, realistically, they were the backbone of the American armored forces until about the 1930s. The M1917 light tank, which was the designation the U.S. Army gave the license-built Raynal light tanks, uh, there were a few changes here and there, mostly cosmetic and a few internal moving parts, but 
generally speaking, the M1917 was the Raynal light tank. The quite numerous six-ton M1917 light tank, which in the decade following the Great War, numbered about 950. The U.S. Army's arsenal of tanks did not end there. Not to be outshone, the 40-ton Mark VIII heavy tank, which was designed in close cooperation with the British. These Mark VIII tanks, known as the Liberty Tank, or, and I've only read this in like a few dispatches here and there, it was also known as the International. Uh, don't, I don't know, I would just, it's a Mark VIII tank, okay? Uh, this tank, the Mark VIII, 100 American Liberty Mark VIIs were produced in total, which had all been assembled by the Ordnance Department at Rock Island Arsenal from September 1919 through to the end of June in 1920. Rock Island, or Arsenal Island, or as it is known now and has been known for quite some time, Rock Island Arsenal, is an island on the Mississippi River within the state of Illinois and has been one of the key arsenal and ordnance manufacturing sites in the United States. The site itself has been in U.S. Army hands since about 1816. However, the Sauk natives, and I apologize if I've butchered that name, took a little bit of an exception to the U.S. Army occupying the site and fought a bloody war known as the Black Hawk War of 1832. Totally outside of the purview of this podcast, but if you didn't know this already, the history of the United States is lousy with broken treaties, followed by horrible wars, and followed by further horrible outcomes with the native population of the United States. Manifest destiny and all of that. The arsenal itself was originally constructed in 1862 and has been in use ever since. The scope of the arsenal's production capabilities has waxed and waned over the decades, but it is worth noting, for our story that is, the main, and in those early days only, production plant for American armored vehicles in any such capacity. Notable outdoor exhibits include the M65 Atomic Annie Cannon, an 86-ton, nuclear-capable, 280-millimeter artillery piece. Yes, you heard me, an atomic howitzer. They've also got an M50 Ontos self-propelled rifle, a six-tube, 106mm, recoilless rifle anti-tank platform. Look it up, it's absolutely bonkers. We'll have to cover it at some point down the line. Um, anyway, if you ever have a chance, definitely do yourself a service and go visit the Rock Island Arsenal Museum. The point is, this arsenal is kind of the birthplace of U.S. armor? Sort of. Obviously, arguments can be made, but this is the first place of armored production for the U.S. Army. According to R.P. Honeycutt, who I will be referencing quite a bit as he is a pretty solid authority for U.S. armor development, as well as, quite specifically, the Sherman tank. During these lean years, the 952 M1917 light tanks, the 100 Mark VIII heavies, along with another 15, yes, a whopping 15 three-ton 
Ford light tanks, known in U.S. Army parlance as, I have to admit, is my favorite type of nomenclature. This three-ton vehicle was known as Ford, three-ton, special tractor, M1918. You'll see what I mean as we continue throughout the series regarding the naming practices of the U.S. Army. I don't want to get into this particular tank, since only about 15 were built, but just note that they look like something out of a steampunk novel and really did not influence the medium tank zeitgeist much at all. So, there you have it. The U.S. Army's armored force consisted of 1,067 tanks in total, which were all obsolete by the time they left the factory floor and entered the U.S. arsenal. Sadtrombone.com It was, however, not all for naught. Nay, this plain and visible weakness in the armored corps was not an unknown quantity. The first response was not to reinvent the wheel, or tracks in this case. So, of course, like any frugal nation after an expensive war, decided that instead of pouring lots of money into brand new designs, they would instead just siphon a little less money, but still kind of a lot of money, but less in total on upgrading the models currently sitting in the armory. Not a terrible idea on the face of it, but when you realize that these vehicles were really that obsolete, uh, and honestly, despite any and all upgrades, these vehicles could never be brought up to the standards of the day. The army soon realized this and decided that it ought to also be researching and developing new design models. Quote, the army was equipped with these two essentially obsolete types. A portion of the limited budget had to be redirected to the task of upgrading these vehicles and improving their efficiency. This work covered such items as new gun mounts, improved communication equipment, and the development of tank compasses and an odograph. End quote. This is an excerpt from Honeycutt's Sherman, A History of the American Medium Tank, which illustrates the nominal progress made for the heavy cost in upgrading tanks that honestly had no business on any modern battlefield. What little remained of the army's budget to conduct any sort of tank research was spent on two parallel programs. The first being a fully tracked development uh, by the Ordnance Department, which was a branch of the U.S. Army. Secondly, the convertible wheel and track vehicles led by none other than J. Walter Christie quite the eccentric engineer and armored enthusiast. More on him later. In June of 1919, the Ordnance Department launched a program to design a new medium tank, leaning more towards the already underdevelopment British medium D tank for inspiration. Major R.E. Carlson, an officer of the Ordnance Department, who had previously taken part in the Anglo-American medium tank program, which ended up producing the aforementioned Liberty Tank, the Mark VIII. He would indeed play an important role in defining the parameters of the new U.S.-born design. Though officially, Brigadier General S.D. Rockenbach, famously appointed commander of the American Expeditionary Forces Tank Corps during the Great War by General Pershing, 
Brigadier General Rockenbach was the head of the tank school at Camp Meade until about 1924. He would guide the majority of tank philosophy in the U.S. Army until his retirement in 1933. Rockenbach's official parameters were laid out in a paper dated August 18, 1919, and here we have it from Honeycutt's Sherman book. Quote, Rockenbach called for a tank not exceeding 18 tons in weight with a power-to-weight ratio of 10 horsepower per ton. A maximum speed of 12 miles per hour was required with a cruising radius of 60 miles. The tank was to be armed with one light cannon and two machine guns and have armor protection against armor-piercing rifle caliber bullets. End quote. Okay. These are some basic guidelines, and if we'll recall from the last series, that the program that would ultimately create the Panther had set up, you know, similar guidelines. Not by the power and weight standards since the Panther came about during the war and was obviously going to be a bigger, heavier, and more powerful machine. But what I'm saying is simply, this is how governments come up with new armaments. They put out a contract and see what returns they can get. These guidelines almost feel primitive when you compare them to the Panther, but I'm betting if we cracked open some of my books on the earlier Panzer types, like the Panzer I, Panzer II, even probably the Panzer III and IV, I think we would find quite similar humble beginnings. Though, to be fair, in 1919, Germany wasn't exactly in any place to be worried about armored production just yet. They had some, shall we say, troubles to deal with before they started back on a war footing. But that is neither here nor there. What I find quite interesting is 18-ton medium tank. That's what, uh, that's, that's what is set out in the parameters, and that is obviously going to be a lighter medium tank. This type of thinking, and a lot of armored thinking at the time, hadn't yet wrapped its head around the idea of tanks fighting other tanks. Now, I know that's kind of a cliche, so let me explain. I mean, yes, obviously, those encounters would happen. So, armored theorists understood that tank versus tank combat was going to take place. But this was not the sole intention of these tanks, nor was it going to be the primary threat faced by the armored corps. Remember, the light cannon that was referenced in this 1919 order probably assumed that either the 37mm or 57mm cannon would be the maximum gun either being faced or being used by tanks of this era. The US itself, they ended up using the 57 for this tank. But the idea of high-velocity anti-tank weapons was not exactly at the forefront of anybody's mind. It certainly would become so, but in 1919, it simply was not. The armor thickness for basically all the vehicles of this generation needed only to be able to stop a 50 caliber armor-piercing round. Think along the lines of the 13mm Mauser tank Gewehr of 1918. Now, yes, 13mm is a little bit bigger than a, a 50 caliber, uh, but not by much. 12.7mm is that that's interchangeable to me with a 50 caliber. That's the same. The bullet is about the same size. 
So 13 millimeter compared to 12.7 millimeter, I mean, we're talking three tenths of a millimeter. That's not a lot. What, what I'm saying is, why would they be worried about this essential, this elephant rifle, you know, a 50 cal rifle? Well, at the time, all the great thinkers were essentially planning to fight the great war all over again, just better prepared. They were under the impression that anti-tank rifles would be a normal occurrence within infantry units now that tanks existed. And I'm looking at you, Soviet Union, because you took that to another level during the Second World War. And, you know, the planners, they weren't entirely wrong. Handheld anti-tank weapons would prove a common occurrence throughout the next World War, but it was definitely not going to be defined by elephant rifles. For the operating characteristics... Remember, the main armored fighting vehicle in the U.S. arsenal is the M1917 light tank. So, by requiring a mere power-to-weight ratio of 10 horsepower, that would essentially double what was currently being used in the M1917. The operational range of 60 miles, or 97 kilometers, was double that of the M1917. The maximum speed required of 12 miles an hour or 19 kilometers an hour, was nearly triple that of the M1917. In essence, this heavier, more armored, upgunned, and just overall better tank was outclassing the contemporary mainstay by leaps and bounds. That is, at least, on paper. And we need to remember that all of this is prior to even a wooden mock-up. So things can, and will, definitely be changing as time goes on. But I figured we ought to lay out the groundwork of what would essentially be the start of the American medium tank program. In April of 1920, the newly constituted Tank Corps Technical Board had a chance to pour over the aforementioned wooden mock-up of Rockenbach's desire. It was approved with a few minor tweaks on April 13th of 1920. With an order of two pilot tanks to be constructed, the birth of the medium A number one tank was complete. However, that atrocious name would be dropped and the prototype vehicle would officially be recognized as medium tank M1921. Ah, the creativity. Not to be outdone, uh, the Brits having just completed a brand new suspension system using a flexible cable piqued the interest of the Ordnance Department and thus insisted that the second pilot vehicle utilize this British flexible cable suspension and so the medium tank M1922 was also born. The first of these two vehicles, the M1921, as I'm going to refer to it from here on out, that is, until we get to Christie's medium tank, M1921. Because, like I need another hole in the head, the medium tank program just gets a little more confusing by the fact that not only is the Ordnance Department in the business of designing a U.S. medium tank, but J. Walter Christie was simultaneously designing his own medium tanks, sharing the same name, albeit different tanks. We'll get to him in just a minute here, so just hang tight. Anyway, the M1921 was finished in December of 1921 at Rock Island Arsenal and delivered to the Aberdeen Proving Grounds on February 20th of 1922 
for further testing. The completed vehicle came in at about 20 and a half tons with a Murray and Tregurtha engine rated at 220 horsepower at 1200 RPMs. The M1921 thus boasted a 10.7 horsepower to ton ratio. However, during its time at the proving grounds, the engine proved much less powerful, only rated at 195 horsepower at 1250 RPMs. Before we continue with the M1921, much like the Rock Island Arsenal, I mentioned the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, which will be mentioned pretty much until this series ends. I thought it might be somewhat useful if I gave a small explainer on what that is, and for those of you who already know, maybe a little refresher. Like a lot of things for the more modern U.S. Army, think post-Civil War and beyond, the need arose for a testing site that the U.S. Army could use to test newer and more destructive munitions and weapons of war. That is not to say that the U.S. did not already have a proving ground. In fact, the Sandy Hook proving ground at Fort Hancock of New Jersey did exist since 1874. It was, how do you say too heavily populated of an area and much too small of a place to test things like modern heavy ordnance, materiel, or, in our case, and which would become a top priority, a playground for testing armored fighting vehicles. To remedy this situation, Congress and the President proclaimed, along with a little financial compensation, uh, which was used to pay out some rather stubborn farmers, imagine not wanting to leave your land, all of this was to acquire 35,000 acres of upland along with another 34,000 acres of swampy tidal lands. Officially acquired on October 20th of 1917, the U.S. Army began immediately constructing a number of laboratory, testing facilities, barracks, guardhouses, and all sorts of things that you would need to ultimately make up the new testing grounds. According to the U.S. Army, quote, Beginning in January of 1918, the new proving ground at Aberdeen would proof test field artillery weapons, ammunition, trench mortars, air defense guns, and railway artillery. End quote. They would later expand the operations of the proving grounds to include the Ordnance Training School, poison gas research, small arms development, and even an airfield to test bombing theory. Aberdeen would do it all. After the armistice was signed in November of 1918, finally ending the Great War, the Phillips Army Airfield would help develop aerial bombing strategy, theory, and doctrine, along with practical applications that would improve the accuracy of bombing missions in the years to come creating a somewhat viable hope in the future of the bombing campaigns which would ultimately become a mainstay of the Second World War. During the 1930s and well into World War II, I know this is a bit ahead of our story, but I thought I'd give this brief, you know, the treatment. Aberdeen would grow in size uh, in both area and personnel. About 35,000 military and some civilian researchers, testers, guards, and everybody in between would operate at the Proving Grounds. 
More buildings, further research and inventions would include the Ballistic Research Laboratory, the Automotive and Armor Testing Ground, the first digital computer known as the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Calculator, or ENIAC for short. Uh, and as a matter of fact, even the bazooka was invented at Aberdeen, to name a few. Aberdeen Proving Grounds would find itself drawing down at the end of the Second World War, only to be reinvigorated during the Korean War, and ultimately would find itself continuously expanding ever since. Aberdeen continues to this day to be the U.S. Army's prime research and developmental base, though most of its modern-day application has very little to do with the Sherman tank, at least anymore. It was, at the time, the place where the medium tank was brought to bear and would ultimately prove itself a meaningful piece in the United States arsenal for the coming war. Meanwhile, Back to Aberdeen, circa 1922, the M1921 medium tank was still being put through the ringer at the proving grounds. The engine having proved to be much less powerful than was originally advertised, the maximum speed fell a little bit short of Rockenbach's required 12 miles an hour. The M1921 basically was rolling around at about 10.1 miles an hour or 16 kilometers per hour. The 18 inch wide tracks produced a ground pressure of only 10 pounds per square inch, which is not bad if you consider that the T-34-85, which you could argue had the best ground pressure of the contemporary tanks during World War II, was only about 10 and a half pounds per square inch. The Panther, by contrast, was 11.5-ish to closer to 12 pounds per square inch. I'm not going to give away too many spoilers in the first episode, but the Sherman's ground pressure was not great comparatively. These early tanks boasted a mere 1 inch or 25 millimeter worth of armor on the vertical surfaces, which encased the crew compartment all the way down to three-eighths of an inch, or 9.5 millimeters thick. This was used mostly to cover like the engine deck and the roof, that kind of thing. The M1921 itself had a crew of four, being the driver, the gunner, the loader, and the commander. At the time, four men, that was more or less a common occurrence with armor during this period. The M1921 was no outlier in this regard. Armed with a 6-pounder or 57mm cannon, the M1921 came ready for a fight. By no means was a 57mm a monster cannon, but the reality in 1922 was, you know, that that was good enough. That was appropriate, pretty much par for the course. The 6-pounder itself was housed in an interesting-looking, it almost looked like a Hershey Kiss gun mount, like the Mantlet. It also contained a Browning 30 caliber machine gun fixed in a coaxial mount on the side of the cannon. On top of the turret was the commander's cupola, which could rotate independently of the turret and in many ways was itself a turret on top of a turret. The cupola was also sporting a Browning 30 caliber machine gun that the commander could use to fend off infantry or help guide the cannon fire by using tracers. 
Now, due to the auditory nature of podcasting, I'm going to do my best impression of someone who can describe in detail what the medium tank M1921 looked like. Though again, I will post pictures on Instagram, so you can check it out there. The lower half of the vehicle, that is to say the chassis, exudes a very British flair, by which I mean very tall tracks which go up and above and past the nose and deck of the chassis. Think along the lines of a Churchill tank, how, how kind of those tracks sit above the hull almost. The tracks themselves essentially ride above the hull and sit on the roof, though, you know, not actually on the roof, but that's what it looks like. Very British. If you think about it, it jives because the M1921 took some liberties from the Liberty tank. See what I did there? Four mud panels, and sometimes more, just depends on if they were opened or not or sealed up. These mud panels existed toward the upper front end on the sides of the tank. Again, a la the British Crusader tanks, which were used to help keep the mud and gunk off the inner workings of the tracks. And speaking of the tracks and suspension, the running gear on this tank had very small dual-wheel bogies set up in pairs. Again, much like the early British tanks. These did not have the large road wheels like, say, the T-34 or Panther would have. The upper half of the vehicle, that is the turret and the top deck, to me, has a very early war Soviet vibe. Specifically speaking, the T-35 land battleship. I know that's not its actual name, but it looks like that to me. You, you know which one I'm talking about. With It had all the turrets and the machine guns, and it looked like you could walk around, and there was a guardrail. It's, it's a wild design. But the cupola on the M1921 makes me think of that early foray into landship-style armored fighting vehicles. The nose of the vehicle and the upper glacis was sharply sloped, almost in a modern sense. However, the ingress and egress points were just simply two doors that were set into this sloped glacis. Unfortunately, this would create a weak point at the very front of the vehicle. The doors themselves were on hinges and swung outward for the crewmen. The sides of the M1921 were all well, good, and flat. Though the road wheels and suspension system were mounted behind a wall of armored plates. Essentially side skirts, but they were more permanent. Again, if you look at the early war British tanks, you will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Finally, moving on to the turret of the M1921, which resembles almost a, a ship's turret, kind of like a battleship or a cruiser. It's very cylindrical and flat on top, except there were two wings that sloped downward on the roof. So if you can imagine, the, the left third and the right third of the turret sloped down. Um, this essentially would reduce the space within the turret. However, it presented a somewhat sloped target from the sides of the turret. These early tanks, they were, they were just experimenting, trying to figure something out. The armor itself would have been riveted, small, hardened plates, like we had previously discussed with the Panther series, welding techniques and face hardening 
just weren't up to the task as of yet. Remember, it's 1922 and riveted armor was all the rage. And I think I think maybe somebody forgot to tell the Japanese and Italians since they continued with riveted armor until the very end of the war. Testing of the M1921 would continue alongside the M1922. We'll touch on her in a moment. Until 1926, by which time it was determined that the M1921 was slow, unreliable, and weak. Well, that is to say that the Murray and Chagurtha engine were quite unreliable and underpowered. An attempt was made to quickly remedy this problem by installing the much larger 338 horsepower Liberty 12 engine borrowed from the Liberty tank, which honestly did improve the speed, the maneuverability, and it also promptly ate up the powertrain components as they were too weak to receive the ultimate power of the Liberty 12 engine. The last efforts made in 1926 before concluding the testing was to improve the powertrain again by using the specially designed 8-cylinder, 200-horsepower Packard engine. Itself was currently in its own testing phase because they wanted to use it on a further tank project that was in the works. When I tell you that the Ordnance Department had several plates spinning at the time, I'm not kidding. Throughout the testing life of the M1921, it was not all for naught. The M1921 proved quite suitable as a testbed for a few various components that would ultimately lead to some technological breakthroughs later on. The stroboscope vision device, which can better be described by probably anyone else, but hey, you're stuck with me. So let's see if I can make this make sense for not only you, but for me as well. The problem. Vision in the cupola, and well, anywhere else inside the tank if you wanted to look out, would have been extremely limited. Periscopes, you know, they had been tried, and somewhat successfully, but their range of vision was rather limited, and they were kind of fragile. The current solution was a small slit cut into the armor and for the driver or commander to essentially use direct vision. This presented a further problem. Sure, this vision slit was extremely narrow and small. It was, however, a direct portal to the outside world. An outside world where various dangers presented themselves to the squishy flesh bags on the inside of the tank. Primarily, high-speed hot pieces of metal aimed at the lumbering tank. It would obviously take a very well-aimed shot to go through this vision slit, but the law of averages assumes that with enough missiles fired, one presumably would get through or get close enough. So what the hell is the stroboscope going to do? You know, unst, unst, nope, no, 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 stop it. Not that kind of strobe. The best way to explain this effect and this device is by understanding the stroboscopic effect. There were these old toys, um, and I kind of remember having something similar that you, you kind of spun it around in the vision, like you would create a moving picture by using... So, okay, hold on. R.P. Honeycutt, in his book Firepower, A History of the American Heavy Tank, has a good excerpt that he took from an old French translation. 
Quote, an early example of this effect is seen in the Victorian toy, the Zeotrope, which used a slotted cylinder with a series of images on the inside of the cylinder. When the cylinder is rotated, the images appear to fuse into a single moving image and the slots appear to vanish. This is caused by the phenomenon of the persistence of vision. Human vision actually sees the world in 0.1 second slices. Our brains supply the interpolations to give apparent continuous vision. End quote. Essentially, you would peer into this periscope-like device, which was spinning around, giving the viewer a much larger field of vision that was technically in motion but not seen to the human eye. I know it's kind of a bad explanation, but that's as bad as it's going to get, and it's as bad as you might have wanted. The takeaway here is that everyone was looking into the solution to direct vision ports. The French device was okay, but they abandoned it, and according to Honeycutt, the American attempt wasn't any more successful. The devices were simply too fragile and vulnerable to small arms fire, which led to further research focusing on better and hardier periscopes. Another little device tested upon the M1921 was the Winkley Odograph. I did mention briefly earlier an odograph. This device, which according to the U.S. Patent Office, would allow the driving and steering of a vehicle without direct vision. Along with the Winkley Odograph, the Sperry Gyroscopic Tank Compass would work in conjunction with the Odograph to again improve navigation capabilities while driving blind. And further, a gyroscope compass inside of a tank would provide better bearings and help with navigation. These devices, though in their infancy, would eventually become either themselves invaluable instruments for tankers and tanks alike, or would inspire innovation and create better instruments to be utilized whilst buttoned up inside of a tank. And side note, I just love all of these very 1940s retro-futuristic names. You know, everything at the time was a scope this or a gyrograph that, the stroboscope vision device, the Winkley odograph, and the Sperry Gyroscope. Perfection. Moving on to the medium tank, M1922. Well, there isn't a whole lot to say about this vehicle that would be any different than the M1921, except, of course, for the British cable-type suspension. This flexible cable suspension caused the rear of the vehicle to actually rest higher than the front of the vehicle. Kind of like a hot rod, in a way. You know, taller in the back, lower in the front. Wooden track shoes were fitted on 18-inch wide tracks, carried in steel brackets which pivoted at the center where they were attached to the steel cable. The test vehicle was completed and delivered to Aberdeen on March 1st of 1923 to commence her own testing program. The very same powertrain problems were observed because, again, this vehicle was basically identical to the M1921, except for the suspension. Speaking of, rapid wear of the steel cables became apparent very early on in the testing. To combat this, steel chains were used instead, and 
Although the wear and tear required frequent maintenance, the suspension was lauded for its smooth rideability. Whatever that actually looked like in the 1920s, you know, maybe smooth is the wrong word. However, during the high-speed portion of the test, the M1922 was notably hitting speeds of, drumroll please, 16.2 miles per hour, or 26 kilometers an hour. Holy wow. The M1922, suffering from the same mechanical failures of the M1921, was again destined to be used as a test bed for basically the same gadgets and doohickeys as the M1921, though unfortunately for us, not much remains of what those tests entailed specifically, just know that they were used to further research in later projects. The M1922 would ultimately suffer the fate of being retired to the Ordnance Museum, and can still be found at the U.S. Army Armor and Cavalry Collection. Though I don't believe it is currently on display, as it was, last I saw a picture of it, in rather rough shape and in need of some TLC. Sad day. Okay, I think now is as good as any to get into just who J. Walter Christie really was. Well... He reminds me a lot of someone kind of like a, like a Da Vinci or maybe an Archimedes or even an Alfred Krupp or like a less shitty Edison. He was a tinkerer, an engineer, an inventor, quite an odd fellow, but very smart. And perhaps, in I know the cliche, maybe he was a bit ahead of his time. At least some of his inventions were not all the way appreciated until much later. Some might argue they were appreciated by bad actors, but, you know, that happens. With that said, Mr. Christie was born three days prior to the end of the American Civil War on May 6, 1865. And yes, that American Civil War, which sounds like some ancient thing when you realize that you are listening to the Panzer Podcast, a podcast about tanks, you know, those modern killing machines? So what does a Victorian-era-born tinkerer have to do with the U.S. Army and their armored forces? We'll get there, but it would be a disservice not to include some biographical background to the man. He began his life amongst the industrial arts at the ripe age of 15 and a half, at an ironworks while he was still attending engineering school at the Cooper Union, which itself was founded by U.S. industrialist Peter Cooper, who himself was born in the same year that President George Washington won his second presidential election in 1792. I only bring up that date because it is fascinating to me how quickly ordnance technology jumps from smoothbore cannons to machine guns and tanks in a little more than just a century. The Cooper Union Adult School, which is still operating today as one of the foremost colleges in architecture, engineering, and art, Peter Cooper was an interesting man in his own right, though I won't really get into too much of it. Just know that his school was open admission for men and women while also being completely free a fact that remained true until 2014. Capitalism comes for us all. 
Christie, who was born of moderate means but was in no way considered wealthy, managed to work while attending school and figured a way to, as a teenager, make his way into the De La Matière machine shop in New York. The same machine shop which had constructed the ironclad USS Monitor during the Civil War. The engineering of which greatly excited and consumed the young man. Mr. Christie, who seems to be one of those figures you can only read about, and one that could only exist in the type of capitalist entrepreneurial society that was the gilded age of American industrialism. The very society in which Christie was born into, and certainly it seems, was born for. The Christie Ironworks opened its doors in 1899, when Christie himself was only 34 years old, for those of us keeping track. This was Christie's first company, and he immediately set out to establish contacts and contracts with the U.S. armaments industry, producing and refurbishing gun turret tracks for the Navy. He developed his own lathe and machine tools, which helped spark his innovations in the development of front-wheel drive mechanism, which, yes, J. Walter Christie is the father of front-wheel drive in automobiles. After developing said front-wheel drive, Christie, learning how to advertise during the barnstorming years of America, decided to use his new invention, the front-wheel drive automobile. He would advertise the best way he knew how, competitive racing. Founding the Christie Direct Action Motor Car Company in 1905, he began his advertising and racing endeavor in earnest. Never quite achieving the success he had hoped for and surviving several near-fatal crashes, having his technology uh, borrowed by collision victim Vincenzo Lancia's Fiat, he was the first American to participate in the French Grand Prix of 1907, and subsequently the first American to lose the 1907 French Grand Prix. Ultimately, his racing career would be cut short when Mr. Christie, attempting to set a new lap record at the Brunats Island racetrack in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, briefly taking flight and becoming airborne after his monstrous, at least monstrous at the time, V4 Grand Prix race car struck debris of Rex Reinerston's recently crashed car. Reinerston's car had crashed 10 laps prior and himself had been crushed by his own race car after it lost a front wheel, flipped over, and killed the driver immediately, leaving the mechanic with both his arms and legs broken. Racing... Well, it was still in its infancy, and fatalities were unfortunately relatively commonplace. After 10 laps, they were finally able to clear most of the debris and the bodies from the track, but the race itself had continued around the tragedy, which I just, I don't mean to laugh, it's just, I'm just imagining them just driving around this horrible wreck. But Christie himself, he was determined to win that $500 prize for setting a new lap record. Unfortunately, Christie's vehicle struck a piece of debris that hadn't been removed, sending Christie hurtling through the air, some reports say at least 50 feet, before recommencing his dalliance with Mother Earth. 
Christie would spend two weeks in hospital recovering from these injuries, while simultaneously ending his racing career. At least, he would no longer be behind the wheel, he would still carry on with his race car endeavors, but somebody else would be driving. His final, notable racing record was when his 1909 front-wheel drive Christie Racer was driven by Barney Oldfield, a legendary speedster, set the new lap record at the Indianapolis Speedway on May 28, 1916, with the very first over 100-mile-per-hour record ever, sitting at 102.62 miles per hour, a lap time of only 1 minute, 27 seconds, and 70 milliseconds. Let that sink in for a moment. In 1916, 102 miles an hour, 164 kilometers per hour for the rest of you. Pretty damned impressive to say in the least. Following his near fatal crash, Christie would pour his developments into a new front wheel driven taxi cab, which was notable in that the engine and transmission assembly were transversely mounted, meaning the crankshaft is perpendicular to the direction of travel versus the longitudinal engine, in which the crankshaft ran parallel with the direction of travel. This became important, especially if you think of older vehicles in which the engines were just very long and thus took up more space. And a lot of that space saving would also become due to, you know, inline engines versus V versus radial type engine development. Something we'll be discussing later But in these early days, the concept of a transverse motor was kind of a radical idea at the time and would not really be seen again until I think the 60s or 70s. Whenever the Cooper Minis came into existence, they were also using transverse motors. Again, Christie was just full of these ideas that would not completely be appreciated. Christie's taxi cab would fall into this category. It was advertised as being able to have all of the mechanical components removed and replaced in less than one hour. Though not quite appreciated at the time, it didn't help Christie at all that his taxi was quite unique compared to the more universal, and I'm using the term universal very loosely here, these designs which at the time were quite common and therefore were more well-known and accepted at the time. Not to mention mechanics of the era already knew how to work on the models in existence versus trying to learn a new system. On top of this, uh, Christie's taxi was quite expensive and was thus not adopted by the taxi companies of the early 1900s. Not to be deterred too much, Christie seemingly finished with the idea of front-wheel drive motorcars and maybe becoming the next Henry Ford, he decided that he was going to get into the business of fire engines. Well, fire tractors would probably be a more accurate descriptor. Not to digress too much, but Christie strikes me as one of those inventor types. Uh, You probably have met someone or maybe even know someone like this. You know, the kind of people who they they just can't sit still for too long. They're always pondering, always inventing inventing, innovating, coming up with schemes, you know. Uh, And and what I mean by this is fire engines at the time 
which use steam-powered engines to actually pump the water and create the pressure required to effectively stifle fires, were still horse-drawn. And I know that might seem kind of crazy, but it's something that we take for granted in our very modern existence. But horses, for an extremely long time of human history, were quite literally the workhorses of our society. So even well into the 1900s, horses were definitely more prominent for day-to-day movement and things like pulling carts or even fire engines. Dan Carlin does a great job of going into the history of horse travel in his fantastic series, Wrath of the Cons, on his Hardcore History channel. But essentially, for thousands of years, the fastest method of travel was the horse. Period. From... I mean, before the Roman era to pretty much the Great War, horses were the preferred and, in a relative sense, the best method of travel. Of course, trains would come into existence and you could travel by boat, but even those weren't as prominent or safe or as reliable as you might think. And a lot of times, even during the Gilded Age, trains were not exactly the most effective way to travel. Sure, crossing the continent and train might be the best way, but it wasn't always pleasant. I would highly suggest listening to the podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, an engineering disasters podcast with slides. They've done several series about the railways of the early to mid-19th century in America. It's fascinating and horrifying. Yay, Liam. Anyway, back to our thing. The Christie fire engine wasn't necessarily a revolutionary concept. There had already been several other motorized fire engines to compete with the horse-drawn fire carriages. There was like the the pool car, the Preto, just to name a couple. There were even some battery electric-driven vehicles, but they were kind of a niche-type amusement. Um, And earlier even, the New York Fire Department sabotaged their own motorized fire engines as it was perceived as some kind of threat. Humans are funny and quite resistant to change. Again, Christie, ahead of his time, his unique front-driven fire tractor would actually catch on with a certain degree of success. Several hundred of the vehicles were sold to fire departments throughout the country. Many of these tractors still exist today, and several still even run. Jay Leno's Garage, that TV show that he used to do, has a great look under the hood, along with a bit more history about this particular fire tractor. If you're interested, go check it out. For now, though, we're going to leave Christie's civilian endeavors here, as we're finally creeping up to the gigantic event of human suffering known as the Great War. I promise this is an episode about the M4 Sherman. We just have to get there eventually. During the Great War, Christie had put forth some designs for self-propelled gun carriages, most of which were just rejected outright, as the Ordnance Department at the time had set extremely strict guidelines for what was to be expected out of these new vehicles that the War Department was looking to add to the Army's arsenal. Christie would submit several self-propelled artillery carriages with varying degrees of success. However, one thing that remained fairly consistent with Christie's designs 
especially in his early stages of military vehicle development, was the idea of his vehicles being tracked and wheeled. Which sounds kind of crazy at first, but at the time, wasn't all that crazy. Now that we've finally come full circle to one of the two parallel tank development programs that I had begun to discuss before we went down the rabbit hole, that is J. Walter Christie. That said, we're still not quite into the medium tank of the interwar era just yet. We're still working our way up. Christie's development of the tracked and wheeled system was done so in part because of the lessons learned during the Great War. For armored forces, major losses occurred during the Great War were not always due to enemy fire, but instead were due to the high rate of mechanical breakdowns on their way to the front line. Since motorized vehicles, and especially armored motorized vehicles, were very much so in their infancy, things like tank transporters, heavy prime movers, were not fully fledged out as a portion of armored warfare. Instead, these early primitive tanks would themselves drive to their jump-off point, meaning prior to the assault, these tanks would have to travel under their own power from the railway to the jump-off point to the battlefield, oftentimes breaking down somewhere along the way before encountering any enemy action. This obviously was a problem. You can't lose 25 to 50% of your force before combat even begins, and I don't know what kind of mental gymnastics you have to do to consider that successful, but 50% losses before engagement is not success. So, Christie believed that he had found the solution for this problem. He began tinkering away with some of his gun carriage designs, demonstrating one such example in 1919, a self-propelled gun mount with a wheel and track suspension, which was shown to the tank corps at Camp Meade. It was a success. So much so that the Ordnance Department opened up the purse and ordered a single tank based upon this chassis design. Impressive. And so began the Front Drive Motor Company of Hoboken's relationship with the U.S. Army. Out of this relationship was born the first of Christie's medium tanks, the M1919. This wasn't the first development of a medium tank in the U.S. Remember, this program is running parallel to the M1921 program, which we've already covered. But this was Walter Christie's first dip into the medium tank pool. The M1919 was fairly primitive looking. From the side profile, it looked almost like a, like a locomotive or a train car. Four large road wheels on the front and rear of the vehicle, which were unsprung, rear-driven, and solidly rubber-tired, while the two-wheeled bogey with a single return roller sat near the middle of the vehicle. The bogey itself was coil-sprung and was able to be raised and lowered, being raised during road operation and lowered when the tracks were in use. The bogey itself could raise the vehicle and support the entire weight without the use of the road wheels, allowing it to traverse rather tricky terrain. At least, that was the original vision of how the suspension would work. The M1919 
weighed 13.5 tons and was driven by a 120 horsepower Christie engine. The tracks themselves were only 15 inches wide and made of steel, driven by large teeth that ran down the center line of the tracks and were engaged by the rear wheels to move. The armament was pretty standard at the time. A 6-pounder, 57mm cannon in coaxial mount with a 30 caliber Browning machine gun. I should note here that the gun mount was the same universal in that it was used in both lines of medium tank. The Christie models and the other 1921 and M1922 models as discussed earlier. The armor itself was fairly thin, um, one quarter inches or six millimeters, up to the thickest being one inch or 25 millimeters. Not to mention it was riveted armor. However, a well-sloped glacis in front provided an almost proto-Sherman-looking front end. Though the Christie vehicles were rear-wheel driven, the front reminds me of the latter Sherman. And maybe I'm just looking too much into it because I really want to see the Sherman in this vehicle. Anyway, the crew of three sat two in the turret and one in the front center as the driver. The turret itself, um, a sort of cupola turret which sat directly center line to the cannon, albeit to the rear of the turret roof with its own 30 caliber mounted in a 360 traversable cupola. It's kind of interesting looking as it's a turret on top of a turret, kind of like the M1921, but uh, a little different. It reminds me of the M60 tank with its little miniature turret cupola with the 50 cal in it. I'll, I'll post some photos so we can all experience the oddity that was 1920s tank manufacturing. In a lot of ways, these early tanks were just an experiment that almost seems laughable when you look at them, but we're looking at them with modern lenses, so we see things that we know right away are going to cause trouble or complications or just simply failures waiting to happen. But that's not at all how Christie saw them. With the Great War not even five years into the rear view, these men were building armored fighting vehicles based on the grim and macabre realities that were ever-present during the Great War. I personally believe Christie had addressed all of the issues of the day, albeit using, you know, the only available means to him. The M1919 wasn't an awful idea. It was just going in a direction that the armored combat featured in the Second World War would not. Features like massive trench lines with miles of barbed wire, while still present, were never as quagmire-inducing as the realities of the Western Front in 1917, which meant the ability to raise and lower your bogies like a 6.4 Impala with hydraulics wasn't going to be the amazing aha moment that Christie was envisioning. And even saying that is fairly presumptuous, what I mean is, these features were going to be ultimately passed over and eliminated in later tank designs as we progress through the U.S. medium tank timeline. But I just think it's neat to try and climb into the skin of Mr. Christie 
and catch a glimpse into his problem-solving methodology. Another moot point problem that will have been solved by the time the Second World War rolls around. And maybe solved is too strong of a word, but the problem will have been mitigated by technology and the natural progression of armored vehicles and the heavier support vehicles such as prime movers, tractor trailers, and the tank movers. You know, the tank transporters, they were becoming more and more specialized, functional, reliable, and with the ability to carry heavier and heavier tonnage would ultimately eliminate the need for hybrid wheeled slash tracked tanks. That's not to say that half tracks were not going to be a thing. We only have to look at the World War II era half tracked vehicles to understand that. What I mean is the idea of physically removing tracks from the tank to drive on its rubber road wheels to better save the life of the machinery along with the tracks due to their dubious reliability and a lack of tank transport was quickly becoming a non-issue. Not to mention, as the weight of these vehicles increased, so did the weight of the tracks. And let's be real. If you ever had the opportunity to chat with a tanker of any sort, ask them how difficult or how fun it is to remove tracks from an armored fighting vehicle. These tracks alone, they could crush and kill a person. Testing continued for about three months, or a little less than three months, and was halted on April 21st, 1921. The halt, actually, was on Christie's own orders. He wanted to pause and make some modifications to the M1919 before resuming Aberdeen's testing protocol. All in all, the vehicle was driven 374 miles, or 601 kilometers, of which 37.5 miles, or 60 kilometers, were on tracks. A maximum observed speed of 13 miles an hour, or 21 kilometers an hour, on wheels, and a maximum speed of 7 miles per hour, or 11 kilometers an hour, on tracks. This meant the vehicle was faster than infantry, but was still pretty slow. Fuel consumption wasn't bad. At 59-gallon capacity, the M1919 could travel about 75 miles or 120 kilometers on wheels and 35 miles or 56 kilometers on tracks. You're not exactly going to win any marathons or endurance races. This did, however, best the M1917's operational distance by five miles on tracks and nearly two and a half times on wheels. So, an improvement was certainly visible, especially considering that the M1919 was bigger and packed a stronger punch than the Great War vintage M1917 tanks. The Ordnance Committee agreed to the request and approved the contract to cover the expenses on June 15th of 1921. The modifications would be completed by March of 1922, and having made some modifications, Christie would dub the new vehicle the M1921. The M1921. And before we go further, I know it may seem confusing, but from here on out, if I am referencing the other M1921, I will make that distinction clear. 
For now, we are dealing with Christie's M1921 and not the Ordnance Department's M1921. Okay, with that cleared up, the M1921 was quite different looking when compared to the M1919, which wasn't going to win any beauty contest, but still looked like a tank in the more conventional sense, albeit kind of a cross between railcar scraps and a ship turret, it still gave off tank vibes. The M1921, on the other hand, was different. The turret was dispensed with. The M1921 would be a casemate vehicle, kind of like a proto-stug type vehicle, with a lot more machine gun mounts. The same gun mount was used to house the 57mm, or the 6-pounder, Again, it was at the time, you know, it was the universal gun mount, which was used in all American medium tanks of this generation. However, it was now fixed to the front with limited traversability, along with an additional pair of Browning 30 caliber machine guns, which were to be mounted on the left and the right of the front hull. The crew was plussed up to four and included two gunners, a driver, and commander. The seating arrangement would be unique, and, as we will note, not successful. The two gunners were now in the front of the vehicle to service the main cannon, as well as to be able to use the left and the right front-facing machine guns. The driver and commander were now moved back behind the gunner's positions, and would sit in the center of the vehicle. The two of them would each have their own cupola with vision slits that looked more like a Crusader's Hume or a Jousting Knight's Great Helm. To say it was primitive is taking it lightly. The tracks in the engine would remain the same as the M1919, meaning they weren't fantastic, but also not the worst. The suspension was altered, eh, but not too much. The rear road wheels were the same unsprung, powered, rubber-tired wheels as seen on the M1919. Uh, the front pair of road wheels were now sprung with large coil springs mounted in the sides of the front hull, which gave the vehicle an oddly, like a dune buggy look to it. The center bogies were no longer able to move up and down, so your 6'4 Impala just toss that out the window. Instead, a more conventional large road wheel and a pivoting bogey system were used. Testing resumed through the summer months and well into the fall, concluding on October 24th, 1922, without too much fanfare, though some exhaustive information was gathered and many lessons were learned. Primarily that the M1921 was an unreliable piece of garbage with limited visibility mobility, efficiency, and crew capacity. The M1921 casemate was a dead end. Not to be too much of a negative netterd, I'll add here the only positive outcome of the M1921 testbed, and that was the fuel capacity, which had now been increased to 67 gallons and thus extended the distance to about 100 miles or 160 kilometers on wheels, and 60 miles, or 97 kilometers on tracks. Not too shabby, but not great either. 
Ultimately, the fate of the M1921 was to be that of a museum piece, rejected by the Ordnance Committee, and on July 10, 1924, the only produced vehicle was shelved in the Automotive Museum of Aberdeen. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, the vehicle has been lost to time, which is really a shame since this early work of Christie's would have been such a cool thing to have a look at. Um, however, just like the elusive Tiefelanhange for Panzerkampfwagen 45T or the SDAH118 45-ton trailer that I was looking for during the Panther series and which I never really found photos of, if one of you fine listener folks happen to have any knowledge of the whereabouts or the ultimate fate of the M1921, which I suspect was either scrapped or auctioned off and then eventually scrapped, but if you have any knowledge, I would love to know where Christie's M1921 medium tank ended up. So drop me a line. Well, folks, this is a nice stopping point as we have another generation or two of proto-medium tanks to discuss before the Sherman starts taking any real shape, I want to just stop here and thank all of you for your patience in waiting for Season 2 to begin. And I promise, if you've stuck around this long, you are in for a real treat. This series is going to cover a hell of a lot of material, and I'm very excited to continue our journey here at the Panzer Podcast. So without wasting too much time, welcome back. We'll see you in two weeks for the next episode. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. I will be posting photographs of some of the vehicles we've discussed on today's episode. So check out our Instagram if you'd like to keep up with those. I will be posting photos to accompany each episode of the series. If you like what we're doing here, I would appreciate a positive review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or, you know, wherever you're listening. If possible, you know, don't don't sweat it because it does help us reach new audience members and I appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening.